All right. Once again, good evening to you guys. Um, always a blessing to be able to share with you. My name is Dan. I'm the youth pastor here. So used to sharing with middle schoolers and high schoolers who I love. Some of them are in the room, and I love them dearly. Not you, Pastor Mark. You're not a middle schooler or high schooler. <laughs> I, it's, I know, you know. I know you want to be, but it's okay. <laughs> so, well, what a blessing. Um, just so, I, I, as I was worshiping, guys, just something on my heart, um, especially as Mike was just sharing that last song. Just want to encourage you guys just to spend time with Jesus. Um, it's just something that... Uh, I know for me, I'm, I'm a, t- a teacher, so going into this, this school year, um, it's just something that the Lord, obviously it's something I've always done, but the Lord has just really placed on my heart to spend time in prayer in the morning before I, I start the day and to really commit. You know, it, it's, it's one thing, I, I, I've always read my Bible in the morning while I'm eating something and I'm, uh, my mind is all over the place, but I think there's a special, special blessing by taking time, and, and, and you know, Jesus ha- had a place. It's, it said that he arose early in the morning, and that he went out, and that he, he spent time with the Father. And guys, if Jesus did it, right, how much more us, right, to spend time with the Lord. So just encourage you guys, come into the presence of God. You know, you're struggling tonight. You, you're feeling just like in a dry place spiritually. Ask yourself that question, am I spending time in the presence of God? Not just like, am I quickly, quickly praying before I go to work? Look, we're called to pray without ceasing, but God wants to spend time with you. He loves you, and he wants to, he wants to be in your presence. So that's just something that was on my heart for you guys. Um, so tonight, we are going to be continuing in our study of the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis chapter 49, the usher who is my, my father, is, uh, is coming, coming through, right? <laughs> Usher Bob, coming through. So if you need a Bible, you can raise your hands, and uh, he'll get one to you. Genesis chapter 49, as we continue in our study in Genesis, and we are almost done. I don't know about you guys. It's kind of like, it's bittersweet, right? It's a little sad. Um, but the great thing is that you know, the word of God is everlasting, <laughs> and we can, we can read the book of Genesis as much as we want and study it, um, and it's, it's been a blessing. As we've been in this book for over a year now, um, I know I, I've been blessed uh, just to study God's word. So Genesis chapter 49, um, just to kind of kick this off, have you guys ever stumbled upon an article, maybe on the internet, that is titled something like, Where Are They Now?, and what it's talking about is, like, maybe there's, like, these childhood celebrities or people that you grew up maybe watching on TV, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not that old. So, like, for, for me, it's, like, a show like Full House. Anyone know that show? Full House? It's a good show, right? So my wife and I are watching that right now. We're, we're kind of going back through it. But I, I think about, you know, where are these, these actors and actresses now? And, and, and these, these websites give you, you know, kind of a description. And what you see is that some of them them are doing really well. And some of them you know of, right? You're like, I've seen them in other shows. I've seen them in movies. And then some of them, you're like, whatever happened to that person, right? Like they, they were so famous as a child and I never heard from them again. So one thing I think inevitably when we see this is that we see people and we say, man, they got old, right? And what that means is that man you got old as well, right? And, and that's just the inevitability of this picture, right? But tonight as we study through the book of Genesis, we're going to be looking at Jacob's last words toward his 12 sons, who are the 12 tribes of Israel. And 
I think a lot of times, like these childhood celebrities, we, we hear a lot of some of these sons, right? We think of like the, the, the common ones that we know a lot about, but then there's some where we're like, whatever happened? What, what, what became of Naphtali and Gad and, Gad and, and, and all these sons, right? But what we're going to see tonight is that Jacob is giving his sons great insight. We're going to see a great blessing, a great prophecy come from Jacob as to what will become of the future lineage of each one of these sons. And, you know, as we study this passage tonight, there's a lot of history that goes along with it, but I really feel that there are so many lessons that we can learn from these sons of Israel. Because here's the reality, that we learn lessons from people that have walked faithfully with the Lord, right? We, we see someone that has walked faithfully, and we can learn and, and, and take that as an example of following the Lord. I think of how Paul says, right, follow me as I follow Christ. But at the same time, we can look at those who have stumbled, right? We can look at those who have failed. And, and a lot of times, if you're like me, you know, we read through the Old Testament, and we're like, man, these children of Israel, what is up with these guys? Like, they, they keep being disobedient. You know, God is giving them a commandment, and they're disobeying. Like, what is up with them? And then we stop for a second, and we're like, hey, hold on a second. Aren't I the same way, right? <laughs> Don't I do the same thing that God has given me exceedingly great and precious promises? And I doubt, right? And I struggle, and I fall. And, you know, as the Bible says, that for those who walk faithfully, we're, we're called in Hebrews, it says to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But then later in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to take heed lest you fall, right? So I think these examples can be so critical for us as we look at the, both the successes and the struggles of these sons of Israel. So let's get into the word. Genesis chapter 49 and we're going to start with verses 1 through 2. Verse 1 says this, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in these last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So we saw in chapter 48, if you joined us last week, that Pastor Chris shared about how Jacob, right, at this point in his life, he is really on his deathbed, right? He's just about to die at the good old ripe age of 147. So I don't know if, uh, if anybody's going to make it that long, but um, Jacob is very old and he's become sick now, right? And we saw last week that Joseph, before Jacob dies, he wants Joseph to bless his sons, right? He brings his sons before Jacob and that he, he gives them this blessing, right? He, he lays his hand upon them, gives them this amazing blessing. And now we see, though, that Jacob is on his deathbed. And, you know, so often when someone is about to die, they know that that time is coming. You know, uh, just about a year and a half ago, my, my, both my grandparents passed away. But when my grandfather was about to die, I remember just a few days before he died, he, he called up my dad and he said, I'm going to die. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm dying. And he, he said it so calmly. He said it so just, like, rationally. But there's, there's just this sense of just knowing that my, my time is up, my time is coming. And Jacob knows this, right? Jacob knows that he is sick, that he is dying. He is on his deathbed. But before Jacob died, God had one last thing for him to do. See, he was to speak this blessing and this prophecy over 
his sons. And look, God would sustain him for as long as he needed to finish his work. You see, that is what God does, right? God will sustain us. He will keep us on this earth for as long as is needed to fulfill the purposes that he has for our life. If you were at the Connect conference this, uh, this past weekend, uh, there was an amazing time of testimonies. And, and one of the testimonies that we heard was from uh, Beth Hudson. And, and one of the things that Beth was sharing was about her husband, Ken, who's, who's here with us tonight. And she shared about how Ken, you know, has, has one lung and he had COVID and, and, he, and then he got COVID again. And, and what she said, though, is that, man... God wants him on this earth. And because God wants him, because God has a plan for him, God will not let anything happen to him. He will not let him go anywhere. And we see our brother Ken being used by the Lord, even in that sickness, and being used as a testimony. So it's a blessing that God sustains us, and that's exactly what we see him doing with Jacob, sustaining him to give this word to his sons. So it says in verse 1 that Jacob calls his sons together to gather with him. And I want you to imagine this scene, right? Jacob dying, and all 12 of his sons are around him. You know, I I could imagine that if you're in this place of your last moments on earth, who are the people that you want around you, right? You don't want the, the coworkers that you, that you worked with and, and this. You want the people that are closest to you, right? You want your family. And these are his boys, right? These are his sons that are gathered around him. Now remember, right, Jacob never thought that at his dying moments, all 12 of his sons would be around him. Because remember, for many years, he thought that his son Joseph was dead, right? He thought that his son, that's what the brothers had said, and you guys know the story, right? And he never thought that he would have this moment, but by God's grace, right? God is so good. God sees us. He, he knows us. He loves us, and God gives him this moment, right? He, he sustains the children through famine, and now they're at this last moment of life, and all of Jacob's 12 sons are around him. Notice in verse 2, right, that he says, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Notice that he says, right, gather you sons of Jacob, but then listen to Israel, your father. See, he uses the two different names, right, that Jacob has gone by. by. Remember, the name Jacob, we've talked about this through Genesis, Jacob means heel snatcher, right, conniver, manipulator, right? That is who Jacob was from the time even before he was born, and that was what his character was known by. But then remember that God gives him a new name, right? That God changes his name to Israel, governed by God, right? From heel snatcher, manipulator, to I am governed under the authority of God. And I think it's interesting that he uses both these words. He calls his sons, you sons of Jacob. You see, I think that he does that because he realizes that his sons kind of have some of that fleshly nature that he has. You know, if you're a parent in the room, I think sometimes you can look at your your children, and 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 I'm not a parent, but I I can just see this. I'm a a teacher, I'm a youth pastor, right? You you can see your kids and some of the the mannerisms that they have, you're like, oh no, that's that's all their father, or or that's all me, right? In the way that they respond to things. And I think Jacob sees that in his sons, right? That there is this fleshly nature, right? There is this struggle, But I love how he recognizes himself as Israel. You see, in the very last moments of his life, right, he knows who he is. He says, I am governed by God, right? I am under the authority of God. 
and he's speaking this prophecy. And guys, really, this is the first spoken prophecy that we see in all of the Bible, right? We, we see other prophecy. We see, you know, Genesis chapter three, the, the, the prophecy of, of the seed crushing the head of the serpent. But this is the first prophecy we see spoken by a man. And what is happening in the rest of this chapter is nothing short of miraculous. This is a man that is dying, right? This is a man that is on his last breath. And the things that he is speaking are no doubt inspired by the spirit of God, right? The spirit of God is empowering Jacob in his last moments to speak these truths unto his sons. This is a miraculous thing. This is an amazing prophecy that is gonna be spoken forth. And you know, for the sons of, of Jacob, they might be expecting these nice kind of cushy words, right? They might be expecting like, oh, okay, this is, this is going to be good, right? We're going to get this blessing, and, it, it, and we're going to get all these, th- these great things spoken. But what we're going to see tonight is that some of the truths that are spoken are hard truths, right? You know, I, I, I think about comparing it to chapter 48 when Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons, his his grandchildren. Those words are much more, you know, he says, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, who fed me all. And and, and he says, bless the lads. It, It has that tone to it. But this tone to his sons is a little bit more direct. You know, I think about the difference between Maybe the way that, that grandparents can, can look at their grandchildren versus their children. I, I, I experienced it a lot with my grandparents. My, my grandmother was, was so sweet. She passed away, like I said, about a year and a half ago. And I could do no wrong in her sight. There's absolutely no wrong that I could do. She, she, I remember when I got saved, and I was, I was sharing with her the gospel, and I was, I was saying, you know, we, we called her mama. I said, mama, I'm, I'm a sinner. You would think, She's like, no, not, not you. you don't, don't say that. That is not true. Not you, sweetheart. You are, you are the most, you are the best thing that I ever, and, and you know, that's, that's just the way that she would speak. And I, I could honestly, my sister, we, we, could, we could do no wrong, right? But then when my dad would do something wrong, right? She was, she was uh, Armenian, my grandparents, and they'd be very, very direct. And uh, something they could say in Armenian is escuta, which, which, which means like, stop it, stop that, right? And, and when my dad would be doing anything that was, you know, saying anything that was wrong, she'd be kind of all over him, hard on him, but for her, her, her grandchildren, it was a little bit, some of you grandparents know, you're like, yeah, I, I, I understand what's happening here. So if my, if my dad bothers you, you guys can just go up to him and say, escuta, like, stop it. Cut, cut it out. So I'm expecting someone to do that, uh, hopefully tonight. Okay. So what we're going to see, we're going to go into these, these children and, and these, these prophecies and these blessings. Now, there are 12 children to get to. And some of you guys are sitting here like, oh, no, when, when a pastor says there's, there's, there's 12, 12 points to get through, this is, this is going to be a long night. I, look, I know I've been working all day too, right? But here's the thing is that some of these sons we have more information about, and we're going to dive into them. Some of them are going to go a little bit more quickly through, but we're going to be really just looking at these tribes of Israel and looking about what is spoken and what is prophesied. And again, I want us to think about what lessons can we learn, both from the faithfulness and from the struggles of these sons. So follow along with me in verse 3. We're starting with the sons of Leah and Jacob, starting with the oldest, Reuben. Verse 3 says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. 
because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So as the firstborn, Reuben would have the birthright, right? He would have the claim to the inheritance. And we see that as the first son of Jacob, Jacob describes him at first very positively. He says, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity. You can just imagine Reuben like listening, like, oh yeah, this, this is great, right? Dad, dad just speaking to me. It's like, he's looking at his other brothers. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm his might. I'm, I'm his strength. I'm, I'm the excellence, right? And you could just think of, think of that pride that might be swelling up. But then he continues and he says, unstable as water, you shall not excel. You see, when it comes to the firstborn, when it comes to the birthright, we've seen in Genesis already that that birthright can be forfeited, right? We see that through Jacob and Esau, that according to sinful behavior, according to a desire for selfish things to fulfill the temporary lusts and pleasures the inheritance, what should be given to us can be forfeited and can be given away. He says that he's unstable as water and he shall not excel because he defiled his father's bed. If you remember back, if you were with us for Genesis chapter 35, what it talks about is that, and it's a very brief verse that it mentions it. It says that Reuben, that he went in and he lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And this was right after Rachel, who, who Jacob loved so much, had died. And, and we see this, this wicked act of Reuben that he goes in to, to his father's concubine and he lays with her. He has relations with her. And this would have caused great shame to Jacob. And we don't even know if, if the other brothers even knew about this. But you see, on his deathbed, Jacob brings it up. And he says that because of this behavior, the tribe of Reuben shall not excel as the firstborn should. And listen, this prophecy comes to pass. When you look at the Old Testament, when you study through the entire Old Testament, nowhere else do we see great prominence coming out of the tribe of Reuben. We don't see any judge. We don't see any prophet. We don't see any ruler coming out of this tribe because of this act that Reuben had done. You see, sin is forgiven, right? Praise the Lord, right? That, that we are here tonight, and if you have a relationship with Jesus, your sin is cast as far as the east is from the west, right? That we are forgiven, that we are a whole, that we are clothed with the righteousness of God, right? But although we are forgiven of our sins, sometimes our sin still carries earthly consequences, right? Especially when it comes to sexual sin, you see, I think of King David, right? I know in my personal time, I've been reading through 2 Samuel, and I think about when he sins with Bathsheba. And we see right away that there's, there's consequences earthly, right? We see that, that, that his son dies. But when you read through the rest of the book, you see that David's reign was never really the same, right? That he never really had the, the, the authority, the, the power, the conviction after this. You see, sexual sin especially can cause this, this trouble. It, 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 can, it can rip you apart. And I'm sure every single one of us in this room has seen the effects of sexual immorality, whether it's in our own sphere or in, or in someone that we know, but we see that, that families are, are, are ripped apart by immorality, right? We see that people in ministry, right, are, 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 are ruined by, by particularly just this sin of sexual immorality. And, you know, a lesson I think that we can learn from Reuben is about the importance of stability 
when it comes to our walk with the Lord, right? It says that he's unstable like water. You know, think of water, right? Water is fluid. When you put it in a, in a different container, it's going to take the shape of whatever container you put it in, right? Now, for Reuben, that is kind of how his life was. You know, one moment he'd be faithful. One moment he'd be, he'd be walking in righteousness. And then as soon as the opportunity comes to walk according to his own pleasures, he would take it, right? It's, it's instability. It, it's a lack of being grounded. It's a lack of being on a firm foundation. You see, church, as believers, we need to be grounded in our walk with Jesus. Are we like water, right? Where one moment when we're in one container, maybe our container is here at Cornerstone, right? We're in one container and we're, we're one way, but then we, we get moved to a different place and then we're swished around and, we're, and we're, we're acting like this and we do this, right? We need that foundation in Jesus. I, I think about what James says in James chapter one, verses five through eight. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, the idea is, is, is asking of God, but not asking really believing that he's going to hear you, not really believing that he's going to do anything, right? He says that you're like a double-minded man, right? You're unstable, you're tossed to and fro, Church, we have the ability to build a foundation on Jesus, right? Uh, You think about what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? That whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, that he will liken them to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Are we being obedient to the word of God? Are we doing the things that God has called us to do? As we do, we start to develop that foundation in Christ, right? And that when the storms come, when the winds come, we're able to stand, right? We're able to stand firm. So I think we can learn that lesson from Reuben. Have stability in your walk with the Lord. So that was our first son. That's, that's one of the ones that's longer, so stick with me, right? We're gonna talk next about two more sons because they're grouped together. The two sons are Simeon and Levi. So follow along in Genesis 49, verse five. Verse five says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So we see these two brothers, Simeon and Levi. Now these two were seemingly very close. So it would make sense that they received kind of the same word from their father, Jacob, kind of grouped together for both of them, although there are different kind of meanings of it, which we'll get into in a second. So notice that he calls them instruments of cruelty, right? You know, whereas Reuben's blessing started out really well and he was feeling really good about themselves, when your father calls you an instrument of cruelty probably not feeling great about yourself, right? But why does he call them this? He says that in their anger, they slew a man and hamstrung an ox. What he's referring to, again, we're, we're kind of, this is, like a, this is like a good review. Like when I give a test at school, I give my, my, my students a test review. This is like our Genesis test review, right? In Genesis chapter 34, we see that Dinah, who is the, the, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, that she was, was violently raped by a man called Shechem the Hivite. 
And while Jacob at this moment seemingly doesn't do much about it, we see that Simeon and Levi, that they become very angry and they take things into their own hands. Now, let's think about this, right? Their sister was raped and they were angry. Of course they were angry, right? It is not wrong at all that they should be angry about a horrific and inhumane act against their sister, right? I I can't even imagine the way that they feel. But church, listen, a lesson I think we can learn from these brothers as we see here in Genesis is that we are allowed to be angry, but the Bible calls us to be angry and do not what? Do not sin, right? Be angry and do not sin. You see, they were justified in being angry. But how did they respond? They responded by sinning themselves, right? They responded out of anger and out of wrath, right? And, and, and that's what exactly what it says there, that, that in their wrath, in their anger, in their cruelty, in their ferociousness, that's the way that they responded. You see, if anger leads us to sin, it is not righteous anger, but it's an anger that is rooted in bitterness because true righteous anger should lead us to the presence of the Lord, right? It should lead us to Jesus. Now, I, I think there's, there's probably many in this room tonight, because I'm, I'm one of them, that there are things about our world that make you angry, right? I, there are things that are happening around us right now. You know, I, again, I, I mentioned that I, I teach in, in public school. Please pray for me. And I, I really covet your prayers. I teach middle school too, so pray for me again. Uh, double prayer in that. But I, I see things that, that trouble me. I, I, I see things that I get angry about. So certain things that, that are trying to be pushed and things like that. And and I get angry, you know, and, and there's, there's other things. You know, we see things like abortion, right? And we see kind of, you know, the, the response even to, uh, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned, the response of, of, of anger from the world, right? And maybe those things make us angry. You know, maybe you look at the, the stock market or your, your 401k and you're like, and you see the, the, the trajectory like this, right? And maybe it makes you angry. Maybe you see some dishonesty from politicians and things like that, and, and there's anger that builds, us, but builds up. But church, I want to challenge us tonight as I'm challenging myself. What does our anger move us to? You see, because for Simeon and Levi, their anger moved them to sin. You see, the way that they respond to this incident is that they go and they slaughter right, all the people of Shechem, right? They, they kind of trick them and, and, they t- and they tell them to all get circumcised and while they're, while they're f- recovering from that, it, it's, people even believe that they, they go as far as to, to break into houses to slaughter all the men of this place. You see, that wasn't responding to their anger and righteousness. What does our anger move us to? Does it move us to complain? Because... I know that for me, that's, that's a big thing, right? That when I'm angry about something, what do I want to do? I want to go home and I want to tell my wife about it, right? And I want to complain about it. I'm like, I just I need to. And then I want to go into work and find some other coworkers that are also angry about it. And I want to complain with them because when we complain about things with other people, we feel as though it makes us feel better, right? We're like, you know, misery loves company. Like I'm, I'm angry, they're angry. This is going to make me feel better. But guess what? doesn't make you feel better, right? 
you start talking about it more, you start complaining more, you become more angry, right? And, and, and it doesn't move you any closer to righteousness, it moves you closer to bitterness. Does our anger move us to lash out against people? Do we use things like social media to, to lash out and complain and say, this is, you know, we, and we start commenting on things? Does our anger move us to anxiety? Does it move us to depression? Church, can I challenge us with this tonight? Our anger needs to move us to our knees, right? That's, that's where it needs to move us. Because all of our complaining, right? All of our, our bitterness, all of our, you know, just frustration, that is not changing anything. It's not moving us any closer to Jesus. What it's doing is it's, it's building up bitterness in our hearts, right? And we are no different from the world when we do that, right? The world's an angry place, right? People, people are angry, but we are called to be the light of the world. We are called to be different. Our anger needs to move us to our knees to seek our heavenly father because look, he is the only one that could bring about true transformation, right? He is the only one that can change hearts. We think about these things in the world that we're angry about. We're like, we, we need to do this, this, and this. But look, the reality is only Jesus, right? Only through Jesus changing someone's heart, only through him coming in and, and, and removing that old man and, and filling with the Holy Spirit. That's how we see transformation. That's how we see change. Church, we need to pray. You know, Jesus, I, I was teaching the, the fourth and fifth grade class two, uh, two weeks ago, and uh, the, the message was on loving your enemies. You know, and we looked at Matthew chapter five, where, where Jesus, he talks about loving your enemies, and he says these words, he says in verse 44, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You see, when you're actually praying for your enemies, where when you're actually praying for those people maybe that make you angry, I would venture to say that it might be impossible to still have that anger and bitterness toward them. Right? Now, now, you might be angry about what they're doing, right? It is not wrong to be angry about these things, right? Let me specify that. It is not wrong for us to be angry about the, the wickedness that we see in this world. But when we respond in prayer, when we pray for people, how can we stay mad at someone who we're constantly praying for their salvation, right? How can, we, how can we be bitter towards that person? You see, Jesus calls us to be uncommon. He calls us to be different. He calls us to be set apart. So because of this, this anger of, of Levi and Simeon, because of what they did, he says that they will be divided and scattered. And this is exactly what we see happening in history. Simeon ends up being, starting out as a large tribe, it ends up being numerically the smallest tribe of Israel. And when it comes to their inheritance, right, Simeon ends up sharing land with, with Judah and, and not really, you know, having what maybe he could have. He's scattered. It's, it, it, the tribe is divided. And we see the same thing happen for Levi, but here's the difference, right? For Levi, if you remember, when Moses comes down from the mountain and the people of Israel are worshiping this golden calf, that Levi, right, Moses asks, he says, who is on the Lord's side? And Levi, right, steps forward. And what we see then is that Levi, the tribe, becomes the priestly tribe of Israel, right? And because of that, Levi does not receive an inheritance of lands, because the Bible says that the Lord is its inheritance, right? And we see Levi scattered, but they're scattered around all of Israel, fulfilling the roles of 
the priest. So we see that what could be a, a, a curse for one brother becomes a blessing for, another, for, for the other, again, as they walk in righteousness toward the Lord. Let's keep going as we look at our next brother, who is Judah. And this is an awesome one, that one of the ones that we're, we're, we're hopefully very familiar with. Verse 8 says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So we see this brother that we're familiar with, Judah. And Judah, I want to start with this, is such an amazing picture of God's grace. You see, when it comes to the, the tribe that you would think the Messiah would come through, as we're going to talk about, Judah would not be the one that, according to man's wisdom, I would choose, right? Because Judah has a past, right? He has a sinful past. We've read about it in the book of Genesis. We see how Judah had, had an immoral relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And before that, he fails to fulfill his responsibilities with her. We see that it was Judah's idea to sell his brother to the Ishmaelites. So we see this, this behavior, this, this sinful and selfish behavior of Judah. But here's the cool thing is that Later in Genesis, we see that there is a change of heart in Judah, that there is a repentance in Judah. We, we, we read about it a few weeks ago in chapters 43 and 44 when he becomes a, a surety for Benjamin, right? That is, Joseph is asking for Benjamin to come, and Jacob is saying, no, I won't let Benjamin go, right? I can't lose Benjamin. That, Joseph, that, 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 um, that Judah becomes a surety, he offers himself, and he says, no, if anything happens to him, let it be on me. And later on in the next chapter, we see that as, as Joseph is, you know, uh, Benjamin gets, gets accused of, of taking the cup that he offers himself, right? Again, just as Jesus, in that role of Jesus stepping in and taking the burden upon himself. But, you know, the reality is that the fact that God would choose this tribe of Judah to be so prominent in the future it's because God is gracious. You see, you know, we think about the tribe of Joseph, and we think about how Joseph was, was faithful, and we say, man, why wouldn't the Messiah come through there? Well, look, because we are not saved, right? We are not justified by our works, right? We're not justified by the things that we do. It's all God's grace. And I think Judah is, is this chosen tribe to even give us a picture of that, right? That it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about his grace. We can't do anything to earn the favor of God, right? He has given it to us in his son. So Judah here is told, right? He says, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. He, he's told that he will have this ruling position, that his other brothers will, will bow down to him and praise him. He, he goes on, he compares him. So he says, Judah is a lion's whelp, right? From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. He compares him to this young lion that becomes an older lion who is calm and quiet. And he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until 
Shiloh comes. And guys, listen, this prophecy is so clearly fulfilled in scripture. And looking at it should cause us to do what the name of Judah means. Should cause us to praise, right? To to praise the Lord because in God's sovereignty, so many years later, right, this prophecy comes to pass. We see it first in King David, right? Remember that David is this young shepherd boy of the tribe of Judah, right? And we see that God improbably raises him up to be probably the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel, right? As it talks about, you know, the, the, the prominence, the power of this tribe, we see that in David. He is this powerful leader, and, and he is a, a provider for his nation. So we see it in David, but so many years later, ultimately, we see it in none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you see, it's, it's so clear. Revelation chapter five, verse, verse five, a verse that probably many of us are familiar with. It says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. You see, in John the apostle, it says that he, he weeps because there's, there's no one that can open the scroll, but he says, no, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed, and he can open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Jesus is the one in whom there shall be praise, right? He is the one. I, I love how it talks about your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You know, I think about that prophecy back in Genesis chapter three of of crushing the head of the serpent. And who does that? It's the Messiah. It's Jesus, right? That crushes the enemy. He is the lawgiver. He is the lion who, who bows down, but who reigns in power. An amazing fulfillment of this prophecy. Again, so many years later. And check this out. In verse 10, we read it, it says, the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. You see, this name Shiloh is, is coming from the word shalom, which, if we know, right, means peace, right? Now, this name Shiloh, it can mean a few different things, but one of the things that it can mean is he whose right it is, or he to whom it belongs. And this was always understood to be the Messiah, right? So it says that the scepter, right, that that, that someone ruling over Judah, right, that it shall not depart. And what we see is that from the time of David, There was always a ruler and a lawgiver that came from the line of Judah. Even in times of exile, right, the Jewish people were still allowed to have their own customs, to to, to have their own kind of authority in that way. And there there never failed to be a, a, a lawgiver from Judah. The scepter never departed. But then check this out. In between AD 2 and AD 7, we see that in Israel, that it is under Roman occupation, right? And, and what happened is that, that the Romans, that they said to, to the Jewish people that they no longer had the authority to execute. They no longer had the authority to give the death penalty. And, and that to the Jewish people was the removal of the scepter because no longer did they have the ability to 
to bring forth their own law, to bring forth their own justice. Now they are under the occupation of the Romans. You know, in Jewish history, it says that there is this, this rabbi that during this time that he was running through the streets and, and he was calling out and, and he was saying, woe is us, woe is us, because the word of God is unfulfilled. He says, because the word of God says that the scepter shall not depart until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah comes. But guess what? The scepter has departed and the Messiah is not here. But what was happening between 82 and 87, right? That there was, there was a child. There was, there, was a, there was a carpenter being raised up in, in Nazareth who was the Messiah, right? So Shiloh, peace, he to whom it, it has the right, he had come, right? The Messiah had come, but the Jewish people missed him, right? But we see this just amazing fulfillment of Scripture, Jesus, the lion of the, tri- of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, to whom the children will bow down, and to him shall be the obedience of all people. Amazing stuff that we see through scripture. God is amazing. I hope you guys, <laughs> hope you guys see that when we read scripture, right? That God is, is truly amazing in his providence. We're gonna keep going, and we're, we're gonna start going a little bit faster because some of these next few sons, there's not as much information about, so we're gonna pick up the pace a little bit. We're in verse 13. We're going to be talking about Zebulun and Issachar, both of them together. Verse 13 says, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, laying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So Jacob, if, if you know the order of the, the sons of Israel, he, he's going actually out of order from their age here. But what he's doing is that he's, he's staying on the sons of Leah, right? He's, so he's kind of going by, uh, you know, the sons that were, that were had through, through his wives. So he talks about Zebulun, and we don't know too much uh, about this, but he talks about how he shall dwell by the haven of the sea, that he shall be a haven for ships. His border shall adjoin Sidon. So what we see through history is that Zebulun, right, eventually ends up having this, this place that is right through this, this trade route from the sea. So we see, again, this prophecy fulfilled that when the land was allotted, they are a place that, that borders and that looks toward the sea. Some other things we know about Zebulun is that they provided David the largest army of any single tribe, 50,000 men. Then we look at Issachar. This other son, it says he's a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. Again, Issachar hearing this blessing from his father, he says, you, you're the, you're the donkey, right? And again, maybe not, not the most joyful thing for him to hear. But what we know about Issachar is that Issachar was this large tribe. It was the third largest tribe in size. And it says that he is this, this, this strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now, there's many different kind of interpretations as to, to, to what this is talking about. But, you know, one that, that I, see, I seem to lean toward is that this tribe, Issachar, was given strength, right? They were given numbers. They were given a good land and a fruitful land. But... 
when it talks about how the, how the donkey is laying down between these burdens, bowing his shoulder to bear a burden, becoming a band of slaves, what would happen is as other, other nations were passing through, that because Issachar was not doing anything, that he was, he was kind of just resting on his laurels, if you would. He, 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 this tribe was not doing anything to, to advance. They were kind of just resting on this land, not, not working on it. And we see that they often became slaves to other nations. They often had to pay tribute to other nations that would come through. Again, just seeing this prophecy played out through history. We're gonna move on to the next son. And, and now we're talking about the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the, the, the uh, maidservants and, and concubines. So we see this tribe, Dan, in verse 16. It says, Dan shall judge his people. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. And then he says in verse 18, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. So he says that Dan, right? And my name is Dan. My, name, my actual name is Daniel. And sometimes I think I should go by Daniel because sometimes Heather, my wife, calls me Daniel. And I'm like, you know, it's like, you know, judged, judged of God, judged by God. Dan, not... I don't know, not, not so much, <laughs> not the best uh, history in the Bible. Well, what, what we see of Dan, it says that he's a serpent and a viper that he'll bite the horse's heels. The tribe of Dan, if you remember through history, this is the first tribe of Israel that really introduces idolatry into the nation. We see that in Judges chapter 18. And throughout biblical history, we see that this tribe of Dan keeps popping up as a center for idol worship. Notice that it says that Dan shall judge his people. We see a great judge come from the tribe of Dan. His name is Samson, right? Samson was a, was a Danite. And, you know, some people even think that because Dan is not included in the book of Revelation in the 144,000, a lot of people think that it's possible that the Antichrist, right, will come uh, out of the tribe of Dan. I, I, I don't know that for sure, right? I just know that some people, some people think that. So something for, us, something for us to look into. So we see, though, this idolatry. And, and we know, you know, as, as 1 John ends with, it says, little children, keep yourself from idols, right? I, idolatry can cause just, just so much destruction, right? Putting things before the Lord. I want to key in a little bit to verse 18. It, verse 18 is this amazing verse. It's, it's right in the middle of this prophecy toward his sons. And Jacob stops and he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Right? It, it, it's partially through this prophecy. And what does he do? He stops and he calls out for the salvation of the Lord. You know, it's almost as when he was sharing about some of these sins of his sons. It's almost as you know, when he's sharing about this, this idolatry, he's sharing about anger, he's sharing about immorality, he's kind of putting up his hands and saying, Lord, we need your salvation, right? I need your salvation. You know, do we ever do that, right? Do we ever just stop when things are difficult in our lives and we're walking through trial and just say, God, I need your salvation. I, I need you. I long for you. And what a beautiful picture this is on your deathbed, to be looking towards salvation that will be coming for Jacob at any moment. And I think about in the book of Acts when, when Stephen is, is being stoned, right? In Acts chapter seven or chapter eight, that 
we see it says that he, he gazes up toward heaven, right? And he says, I, I, I see it. I, I, I see the glory of God. Man, I want that to be my testimony, right? I want that to be my life, that, that, that when I'm in that place, if, if the Lord tarries and, and I come to that place of, of leaving this earth, I wanna be looking toward the Lord and saying, I want that salvation, right? Lord, I have waited for your salvation. Interestingly enough, this is the first time you see the word salvation in the Bible. And check this out. This is awesome. The Hebrew word for salvation here is the word Yeshua, right? So so what Jacob is saying is, I have waited for you, Jesus. I have waited for you. We see Christ all throughout the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus. You see, when we recognize the weakness of our flesh and our depravity apart from the Lord, it makes us long for that final destination. It makes us long for that final salvation when we are with Jesus forever, free from sin and death. So let's move on. We're, we're moving along, going to be finished here, wrapping up kind of soon. So we're going to be talking about three more sons, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. We're in verse 19. It says in verse 19 that Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. So here we see three more sons that we don't get too much information about. But we look first at this son Gad, right? It says that a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. What we know about the people of Gad is that Gad was involved in many different military battles, but we see that oftentimes this, this people of Gad was defeated. Oftentimes, as they engaged in these battles, they, they would lose. But what we're told here in this prophecy is that he shall triumph at last. And, and what we see in First Chronicles chapter 5, we see that this prophecy comes to pass, that, that this people of God, that they're able to subdue the Moabites and, and the Ammonites. And we see that they have this victory. But you know, I, I love this because it relates so much to what we walk through in life. That, that a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. You see, so often I think in this, in this life as a Christian, we can feel in this place of, man, I feel like everything is against me, right? I feel like I'm losing. God, I, I, I don't know what is going on. I feel like the world is, is coming against me, and then I'm constantly walking through trial. I'm constantly just, just in and out of this next thing. But for the people of God, even when it seems like we are crushed and we are defeated, at the end, we have victory, right? At the end, there will always be victory. Why? Because Jesus is victorious, right? And because he is victorious, we are victorious. You know, I love sports, and I always throw sports references into my, my teachings, and sometimes uh, Heather tells me, she's like, some people don't like sports, so stop using sports illustrations. But I'm going to do it anyway. So <laughs> this past weekend, uh, I'm, I'm a big, big Jets fan, big diehard New York Jets fan. I, lo- I love the Jets, right? Cornman, attaboy, <laughs> right? So the Jets, here's, I'll, I'll go quickly. The situation was they're losing by 13 points with like under two minutes left. No timeouts, nothing. The game was over. It was over. My, my dad was watching it. I, I called him. He's like, I shut it off. It's, I, I, I didn't keep it on anymore. Forget about that, right? And then 
all of a sudden, there starts to be this, this miraculous turn of events, right? And I don't know what happened, but they, they score a touchdown, and then it's still, it's still like impossible for them to win. They need to get the onside kick, and then they get it. I call up my dad. I'm like, Dad, and he's like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not watching. I shut it off. I'm like, Dad, you need to turn it on right now. Like, there's, there's something happening. And he's like, well, I, I don't know, right? And he, he finally got back to the TV, and what we see is that at the end of the game, they won. They, they had basically lost, but, but they won in the end, right? And I think in our Christian life, right, this is how it can feel sometimes, right, is that it feels like we're losing. It feels like things are coming against us, but at the end of the day, you win, right? And, and the joy that we had, I, I was, you know, I wish I could, could record myself. I'm like jumping up and down. I'm clapping, fist bumps. Heather's upstairs. She's like, what is going on down there, right? But the just the excitement, right, of, of victory that we have. So we see this next son, Asher. It says that Asher, that bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. Again, we don't know much about Asher, but what we see is that it, he's seemingly very blessed and prosperous. What we know about this, this area where they settled is that it was a, a fertile area, that there was, there was vineyards and oil and corn and things that would come from this area. And when he talks about these royal dainties, it's, it's these luxuries, right? <laughs> these blessings that God gives to this nation. The next son there is Naphtali. It says, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now, something interesting about this area of Naphtali is that Naphtali was right near the Sea of Galilee, and in this area is where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. And I think it's interesting that he says he uses beautiful words, right? Doesn't Jesus use beautiful words, right? As Jesus speaks forth the gospel, right? As, as the gospel spreads like a deer let loose to the world, it is a beautiful thing. I think about what Romans chapter 10, verse 15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And our brother, Anthony Angeletta, he, he used to say like, are you ready for a pedicure, right? <laughs> because it's, a, it's, it, it's the beautiful feet that, that, that bring the gospel of peace to the nations. So moving on, we have two more sons to talk about. You, you, have, you have endured through, through, the, through this, this long chapter. It's, it, it's, it's historical, but it's a blessing just, just to see these, these, these failures, these successes. But now we're going to look at someone who we're obviously very familiar with, and that is Joseph. So verse 22 says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow, but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So we have been reading and studying through this story of Joseph for the last 10 plus chapter. So it's fresh in our mind, but what we see is that Joseph's sons have already received a blessing, but now it is his turn. And, and he talks about how Joseph is this fruitful bow by a well. What this speaks of is Joseph's true relationship 
with the Lord. You see, Joseph knew God. Of anything in Joseph's life, that is evident, that no matter what place he was in, he knew God, right? He had a relationship with God. And because of this, he is fruitful. He's fruitful because he's connected to the right source. You know, I think about what Psalm chapter one says in verse three. It says that, you know, that the righteous man, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. And he goes on to talk about how the archers have bitterly grieved him, that they've shot at him and hated him. This was a defining feature of Joseph's life, right? That he was hated, that he was mistreated, right? That he was, he was thrown into a pit by his brothers, that he's sold into slavery, that he's falsely accused, that he's thrown into prison. He's saying, look, Joseph, you have had arrows shot at you, right? Your life has not been easy by any means, But I love what he says, but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Look, maybe you're in a place tonight where you feel the same way. You feel like everything is coming against you. I want you to know that the hands of the mighty God of Jacob are are outstretched and waiting for you. That the arms of his hands were made strong and that your arms can be made strong, right? That we, can, that we can be strengthened by the word of God, that we can be strengthened by the spirit of God to keep going and to keep pressing on. We see how he describes God as the shepherd, the stone of Israel. You see, we learn from Joseph that God was with him in everything, right? That God was, was orchestrating all these things behind the scenes, And Jacob says that Joseph will continue to be blessed because of his relationship with the Lord. And that's exactly what we see. See, we too can be strengthened by the Lord as we're connected to the source. You know, I gave us that that challenge in the beginning of service to spend time with Jesus, right? Come to that river, right? I think so often as Christians, we struggle and we say, man, like I'm just, you know, I'm trying to walk with the Lord, but I'm, I'm caught up in sin and I'm struggling. Look, I, I'm not speaking to you as anyone who hasn't been there. Trust me, right? But go to the source. You know, we go to the wrong place sometimes, right? We, we, we try and we say, I need to try this. I need to do this. I need to talk to this person. I need to, to, to go get counseling and this. And so, look, those things are great sometimes, but have you come to the source, right? Have you come that you may be, be connected, that you may be just, just, just empowered by the Lord and strengthened by him? And then lastly, we look at this last son, the youngest son, Benjamin. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. So we see that Benjamin was the youngest son who Jacob cherished because he was born as, of Rachel as she died. He is the son of his old age. But what it says about Benjamin is that Benjamin will be a ravenous wolf, that he will devour the prey and divide the spoil. Now, Benjamin, this tribe of Benjamin was known, right, historically for being this, this fierce tribe, known for being a tribe that was, was a violent tribe. You know, we think about the people that we know that came from the tribe of Benjamin. One of them is King Saul, 
right? King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And we see some of that behavior, some of that, that, that violence and wrath, especially as he pursues David. But I love another man that came from Benjamin as well. And his name is, is Saul of Tarsus, right? Who we know as the Apostle Paul. And you know, when it says that at night he shall divide the spoil, I, I think about the way that the Apostle Paul changed by Jesus Christ that he divided the spoil of the gospel, right? That he spread the gospel. And when God changed his heart, right, he, he is used in such amazing ways and in such tremendous, tremendous ways. See, we are called to be strong, not in ourselves, but to be strong in the Lord. So we see this amazing prophecy, right? Again, church, I want to stress this. All of these things are spoken by a man that is dying, right? By, by a man that is on his deathbed, this is nothing short of a miracle of the Lord, right? The spirit of the Lord coming upon him, right? Giving Jacob these words to speak. And we even see at the end that the blessing does come, right? That he, that he blesses each of his sons. An amazing picture. Let's close the chapter and finish it out in, cha- in verse 29. And verse 29 says, then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the fields of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So once again, we see Jacob make this request, a request that he's already made to Joseph previously to be buried with his fathers back in the land of Canaan. Now, Jacob is the father of the second most powerful man at this time probably in the world, right, of Joseph. So if Jacob wanted, he could have had this this tremendous Egyptian burial and a pyramid maybe and this amazing, but what does he want? He wants to go back to the land of his fathers, right? To go back to Canaan, to to the place that he knew would be inherited, right? By his people once and for all and for good. And it's interesting to see that he requests to be buried next to Leah, right? And not, not next to Rachel. We know that Rachel was, was the one whom he so loved. But, you know, what I think this is, is two things. I, I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a change of, of, of heart of Jacob, seeing that, you know, Leah, through Leah came Judah, right? The, the, the one that the Messiah would come. But I also just think it's God's grace toward Leah, right? That God sees Leah, and, and, and we see that Jacob is buried next to her. And we're going to see this happen next week in chapter 50 as Pastor Mike wraps up Genesis. We're going to see that this is exactly what happened, right? That Joseph takes Jacob back to this place to bury him. But I love that last verse, right? I'll read it again and then we'll close. Verse 33, when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You see, God gave him everything that he needed. And then when he was done, that was it. His his life was over, right? That he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people right? That he was gathered to, to Abraham, right? To, to Isaac, to Rachel, right? Gathered. What a blessing that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? When you breathe your last on this earth, 
right? It is your first in eternity with Jesus. Do you have that hope tonight, right? Do you know for sure that when you breathe your last, it's going to be with the Lord? Look, if you're here tonight and maybe you, you say, yeah, well, I know that because I'm here on Wednesday night at Cornerstone, right? So like, obviously, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go to heaven, right? Look, we know, church, that those things do not justify us before the Lord, right? That we need God's grace, right? That we need Jesus, that we need to confess our sin before him, believe that Jesus died for you, right? That he took your sin and my sin upon himself, nailed it on a cross and is risen again. Have you put your faith in him? Can you say like Jacob, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. I have waited for you, Jesus. I pray that you would. And I pray if you don't, that you'd come into that place tonight. So let's close in prayer.